How will projections handle the new baseball rules for 2023? What is a risky player? Should Freddie Freeman be a top six pick in drafts? Which first round players will be overvalued? Well, we'll answer these questions and much, much more with special guests Derek Cardi of Roto-Grinders and Tristan Cockroft of ESPN. Live from the desert in Mesa, Arizona, with a studio audience, it's our First Pitch Arizona live podcast. Beat the Shift is next. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, live from First Pitch, Arizona in Mesa, Florida. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, guys. Uh, Ruvain, unfortunately, was not able to make it, but we have two very great guests here. To my left here from ESPN, Tristan Cockroft. And to my right, from Roto Grinders, author of The Bat, The Bad X, Derek Hardy. All right, so as usual, uh, let's uh, jump right into it. And uh, I do want to talk about uh, 2023. Uh, we know we're having some rule changes. And, you know, the number one question I've got asked over the offseason is, are we going to change the name of the podcast from Beat the Shift? And they're outlawing the shift. Um, and so, you know, w w I think we're all smart people listening to the show and, and here over here at First Pitch Arizona. We know that certain players are going to be more important. They're going to gain in value. The pitchers who throw a lot of ground balls, they're going to find more of them going for hits. The pull hitters, well, they're going to get more base hits. The bases are enlarging, so the stolen bases are going to go up. We all know that's going to happen, but my question to our guests here are how much is that going to be? Is it going to be a major effect? Is it going to be a minor effect? And I think more importantly, strategy-wise, as we think uh, our, us, our fantasy baseball players, will the market overreact, right? We know that those pitchers are going to be better or worse. We know there's hitters, but is it, are, the, are the fantasy baseball players in the market going to overdo it? That's the question. Let's start here with uh, Derek. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's a lot of questions kind of rolled up in there. Um, if there's one thing we can count on is that the general public is is not going to do the best job of it because in general, they either overreact or they underreact or they just try to form a narrative about it. Whereas the right way to do it is to try to put a number to it. And a lot of this is obviously, we're not gonna be able to get it exact, but we do have data with a lot of these things that we can look at that can give us some idea and that obviously I'm going to try to incorporate into my projections. Um, there's a panel later this weekend. Um, we'll probably give a little of it away, I guess, but we're going to be talking about these rule changes. I'm on it. Um, I looked a lot at shifts this week. Now, there's still a lot more that I want to look into. It's November. There's still a lot of time. But a lot of what I found with shifts is that the overall effect might be really small, but it's more pronounced for you know, the hitters that it really matters for, the Joey Gallows, the Anthony Rizzos, the guys that everyone is shifting on because they're con consistently hitting it to the same spot. The impact for them can be pretty large, uh, but there's a lot of guys that maybe are getting shifted that shouldn't, or and it kind of balances out a little bit. Um, so that'll be, we'll talk about that more, you know, towards the end of the weekend, but I think that's really interesting. And obviously teams are still going to be able to shift a little bit, just not as extreme as they used to. 
Um, the stolen base stuff is really interesting. We actually have some data on that as well because they did it in the minor leagues. So we can look at what was the cumulative effect in the minor leagues of stolen bases. And we saw stolen bases went up like a lot in the minors this year. And I think the pitch clock probably has more to do with that than the bases, even though that will be the narrative. Um, so, I mean, the, the, there, there's a lot. Why don't we let someone else talk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I would say that what also is changing is the schedule. That, you know, if you're in the AL East and you're playing in all those hitter ballparks, well, you're playing a little bit less next year as uh, we go uh, every team playing every team. Uh, what are your thoughts, Tristan? Trying to suggest that Glaber Torres is not going to have a field day playing all those games in Baltimore? Is that what you're getting at? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that I, I do think the schedule is one of the things we don't uh, – talk about enough that's one where we do have to make projection adjustments uh if you think back to 2020 when teams were only playing within the same division that was one where i don't think people stripped out those stats and made the adjustments accordingly because playing in the central gave a big advantage for those teams and if you didn't adjust for it when you were building for 2021 and 22 you paid the price for it uh i'll go back to gallo gallo is the guy who gets so mentioned for for uh what's going to happen with the shift and I think it's going to get people, as Derek alluded to, lazily thinking into it's all of these extreme low average guys turning things around and gaining 50 points in batting average. And I don't think so. I think we're going to be talking only a few percentage points in terms of batting average. It's not going to get back to where it was where we were hitting 20, 25 points higher 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. I think it's going to be a small adjustment. And I also think that when uh, you draft is going to come into play. I think if you draft after spring training has some data in the books, people are going to overreact as they react as they always do to spring training data. That's another thing I think we should keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, psychologically, people always overreact. Oh, goodness, we have to really account for it. People are going to overreact. So just be cautious. Uh, and I guess we'll find out when we see projections, you know, uh, good projections that are obviously altered for it, what the real change is going to be. Um, what I do want to ask, uh, Derek, as, as I know that one, one thing when you project, uh, we had a change this past year in the National League. We had the DH incorporated. Uh, my question to you, do you think projections properly accounted for the change in the universal DH this past year? I mean, most projection systems probably completely flop, but the bat got it 100%, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, I can't speak for anyone else other than myself, but... Uh, I am pretty confident that there are certain things that we can account for really well. We have, I mean, it might be difficult to do it, but we have the data to do it. Like the schedule thing, I have no reservations whatsoever. I'm going to nail it perfectly because like we can look at the schedule. We can look at uh, previous matchups that every player has been in. And what the bat does, it looks at every single situation every single player has been in, the opposing hitter or pitcher, the bullpen, the defense, the, the umpire, the weather, the park, everything, and it neutralizes it. So we have this neutral starting point for everybody to begin with, and then we can look at the upcoming schedule, and we can say, okay, well, he's going to be in this park this many times, and this is the quality of this team's pitching staff, and, like, we can do that for everybody. And it's very easy to do. It's not easy to do, but it's easy to do. Um, and the same thing kind of applies with, with the universal DH. Like, we can look back and say, okay, well, he faced a pitcher in 8.6% of his at-bats, and we're going to adjust for that, and this year he's not going to face any, and so we just project him that way. So, um, in a way, it's, it, it is easy. Um, certain things like that um, that are, like, 100% quantifiable, uh, whereas other things, shifts, uh, base, base sizes, like, it's a little – we're guessing a little bit more. Right, right. Obviously, when you have hard data, it's, it's much easier. And, 
you know, but it, it's part of the artistry of projections is tackling the unknown and, you know, really coming up with, with what to do. All right, so Ruben isn't here today, but he did leave us with the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Hey there, this is the Injury Guru, Ruben Guy. On the Beat the Shift podcast, we are constantly talking about low-risk players, the players who could contribute value to as many rotisserie categories as possible. In 2022, there were seven hitters that had 80 or more runs, 15 or more stolen bases, and a batting average over 275. Who were they? All right, so to repeat the question, and actually there are eight players who qualified, who had 80 or more runs this past year, 15 or more stolen bases, and a batting average of 275. Anyone have a guess in the audience? Stephen Kwan. Stephen Kwan. Rosario, Julio Rodriguez is three. Tucker. Tucker did not. Jimenez, no. Jimenez uh, missed it. He only had 66 runs. Aaron Judge, yes. That was easy. Yeah, yeah. Anyone? Rosario was set already. I'm in Rosario. Starling Marte missed it. He had 76 runs. Trey Turner. Trey Turner, there you go. Nope, Noah Rosarina. No, Adelise Garcia. Jose Ramirez. Jose Ramirez, there you go. We're missing just a couple. Just uh, two, actually. Mookie Betts did not. Joey Gallo missed it by a wide margin. Good try, though. But once the shift is banned, the shift is he's on, got it. Yeah. Do you guys have a guess, by the way? Any of you guys have a guess on the, on the panel? I, I looked at your list. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jose Ramirez said already. All right. Cedric Mullins. Nope. Nope. Close, though. Otani did not. No. Any last guesses? <laughs> Dansby Swanson. There you go. One more. I'll give you a hint. He played tonight. He played tonight. Altuve is the last one. There you go. A couple of near misses just to announce. Uh, Mookie Betts missed it by three stolen bases. Freeman and Bichette missed it by just two stolen bases. Tommy Edmond missed it. He only had 265 average. Lindor, 270 average. We've mentioned Jimenez and Marte. They missed it just by a few runs. So these are the, the idea behind the question is these are players with outstanding three of the, cat, three of the five roto scoring categories, not the power and homers. And, you know, one thing I'm always interested in is risk and category spread, right? If you're having players who are good in every category, very low risk. And a lot of these players I mentioned are low risk. My question to you, I'll start with Tristan, is what makes – we always talk about, you know, oh, take a less risky player. What exactly makes a less risky player? Is it track record of health, consistent performance? Is it being spread rotisserie? What is it, what is it for you? Obviously, it's a combination of all of them. but Yes, <laughs> uh, I, th I think a lot of us think of this as it's injury risk and we put way too many eggs in that basket uh, so I'd be careful of that because all of these do factor in I'd also throw in role comes into play team comes into play players on weaker teams players on teams that like to mix and match platoons I think fall into that as well uh, I think it's interesting you brought up runs as one of the categories here for the trivia. I think we don't uh, 
evaluate runs scored as a category well enough. It has a strong correlation, especially in your deeper and your AL and NL only leagues. It has a strong correlation with playing time and plate appearances. And you need those in those leagues to compete. So, yeah, that, that also comes into the equation for risk assessment. Yeah, and actually in terms of the 10 scoring categories in Roto, the category that correlates most with the winners, uh, the, with the actual standings, is run scored. So way more important than you think. Uh, what are your thoughts, Derek, on what do you consider less risky? Um, I don't really care that much about risk. Um, I feel like a lot of risk comes down to people's perception of players without necessarily anything to back it up. Um, yeah, some guys are probably more risky than others, especially when it comes to health. But I do think that people are way more confident in thinking they know how risky a player is when in reality, like, a lot of the stuff that we're trying to use to assess risk is just random stuff that they have no control over and isn't actually going to influence what they do in the future. You know, this guy's been consistent, you know, with his stats the last couple of years. This guy's stayed healthy the last couple of years. This guy, um, I think a lot of it's – can we swear? Uh, not on this podcast. <laughs> I think a lot of it's hooey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, if I mentioned, uh, raise your hand if you think that the following player is risky, whatever, whatever risky means to you. Byron Buxton. For those who are not here, almost everybody has raised their hand. Who, who here didn't raise their hand? I want to see these people. Who here Byron Buxton isn't? He's no. great. Yeah, nobody. What a, <laughs> how about this player? Are you ready? Who thinks this player is risky? Aaron Judge. We got like what, 40%. Give me the framework of that one. Are we talking the free agency part? Well, uh, right, that's so, the free agent, yes. If yeah. Aaron Judge re-signs with New York, who thinks he's risky? Okay. We cut out like half the hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one was close. It was close. Absolutely. Who thinks, who thinks Shohei Otani is risky? Raise your hand. Oh, I think Shohei Otani is risky. Uh, isn't health the most uh, risky type, right? Getting hurt is a risk. He's doubly exposed, right? Because he's doubly exposed, his, per his probability, and I know he's been healthy last year, and he was awesome, and he was healthy the previous year, but he is doubly exposed. He has more health risk than anybody. Uh, is so he why is he doubly exposed? He's because, on the field just as often as anybody else. No, no I mean, the pitching aspect, I guess, is a little riskier than the hitting. Well, because it, as a hitter, like, well, yeah, as a hitter, you know, you're exposed to cramps or whatever you're exposed to, but he's also playing a pitcher. His pitching stats are affected by his hitting stats, right? They're, they are correlated. If one of them gets missing, the other one gets missing as well, right? So there is... There's a risk. He, he did play through. He did play through the pitching injury as a hitter during the second year. However, yeah, sure. I mean it is possible, but I've I've wondered that myself. Will he? Sure. Would would one have an effect on the other? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Now I can't say the risk is double, but uh, it is certainly increased more than you think. 
Um, so I, I will say this, though. You know, because of injuries, because of, of a lot of things, more and more uh, of the value that's drafted on draft day is leaving at the end of the year, meaning players who are not originally drafted have contributed more to the overall value as the years have gone on. It's mostly to do with, with injury risk and stuff like that. Um, I don't think that risk in general is properly accounted for by the market. I think that if someone is, quote, risky, a Byron Buxton always goes much higher than he should when you account for risk. My question to you guys here are, shouldn't we be focusing, especially at the very top, on low-risk players? I know if, if you think a player is just a guy like Mookie Betts, man, he just hits this almost every single time, very high ceiling, shouldn't we be focused more on the don't get it wrong in the first two rounds, go for the not risky? Isn't it more important than, than people think? What do you think? <laughs> This is coming from the guy who had Mookie Betts ranked number one. It was either last year or the year before, and I don't think the readers agreed with you on that one, but I liked it. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty big on return on investment in the first round and often the second and maybe the third as well. I think that with your earlier premium picks, and it depends on the depth of the league, just to be clear on that, there's a difference between the AL-only 12-teamers and so for us, the 10-team ESPN standards, there's a huge difference between those two. But I would rather have a guy who gives me return on investment. So we're, we've got one I know on the rundown who I'm big on that we'll get into. Freddie, yeah. Freddie Freeman mentioned there. We'll dig deep into him. But like players who give you consistent production year over year, Bryce Harper falls into this for me as well. Right. I think those guys sometimes do tend to get priced down in a way they shouldn't. Right. Like Julio Rodriguez, I've seen NFBC early drafts where he's gone number one. He's done this once. Now, obviously, we know what he's capable of, but it's a risk of second year. It's a risk of he's new. I don't know. Should he be drafted that high? How about you, Derek, who seems to uh, to uh, poo-poo some of the, uh, is there a risk in a player? <laughs> yeah, so, like, in theory, sure. Give me the less risky player early, all things equal. Um... I don't think we're actually able to identify those guys. I, I don't think – I think we're overconfident. A guy is is safe until he's not. Um, you know, these guys – yeah, Mookie Betts has done it year over year, a few years in a row. Like, great. Maybe he's just been one of the lucky ones who's been able to do that, and his risk of falling apart next year is no no less than, than anybody else. There, there's been no studies done on this. It's all just like – perception and what we think of these guys we just Mookie Betts has done it he must be safe uh there's there's nothing to support that um has anyone ever looked at okay the guys who are consistent year over year over year like Mookie Betts do they continue to be not one person has ever looked at that and I imagine if you do look at it there's probably not a lot there interesting um well you know we did mention Freddie Freeman um, Freddie Freeman... And, and I will say that there is one important distinguishing thing. This is not me saying go out and draft the Julio Rodriguez's, <laughs> but I don't think that's a matter of risk. I think that's a matter of proper assessment, proper projection of a player. Like, Julio Rodriguez is not going to project as well as Mookie Betts because he's only done it for a year. Um, so you're avoiding him, not because of risk, just because of he's, he's not good enough. Right, right. Well, part of some of the pricing is, you know, you're putting risk into the pricing. You're putting risk into the projections, you know, so things like that. Um, you know, we mentioned Freddie Freeman. Um, Freddie Freeman, let me read you his accumulated roto values in a 15-team mixed league over the past couple of years. $38 this past year, 30 last year, 42 
33-30, okay? He's, if you go by projections, which, you know, I know you do, I do a lot, uh, he doesn't come up as a top five player. He doesn't come up as, as uh, even a top ten player. He's usually number 13, 15, 16, 17, 18. Um, yet he's returned such great value. I think it was Rob Silver who had a tweet that he's finished in the top 25 in each of the last five years, and there's only two players to do that, him and Trey Turner. My question is, you know, if, you're, if you take this that you should avoid less risky players and he's shown this much consistency, why isn't he drafted higher? Like, what, Can't we make the case that Freddie Freeman should be, I don't know, a top six pick? Um, and he, I mean, it's not like he doesn't contribute at all in the stolen base category, right? He does 10 stolen bases more. Um, why can't he be, you know, would you rather have Freeman or Aaron Judge? Like, uh, Aaron Judge has shown this amazing year. I mean, he's bound for regression, but Freeman has done this so consistently. How come he isn't drafted higher than he should be? It's a fair question, and I've got a little bit of bias coming in that I do a lot of points-based play now, and Freddie Freeman is amazing in that format, so it's easy to say that he's great. But if you look at him even from the rotor perspective, you know what it is? He doesn't steal enough bases. That's all it is. We, we do place a premium on those in the early rounds. I do it myself. I've been as responsible as anybody over the past several years that I want to get those 2020 candidates, but he's still going to give you a contribution there, and he's rock solid in everything else. And there's something about that that I do want with my first pick. I want that foundational piece that I know I can count on. And I know, you know, Derek, to your point, not, no player is guaranteed here. I mean, you look at Freddie Freeman's career, 117 games in 2017. He missed time. He wouldn't have returned the investment. But more often than not, he is. And you have to calculate that and, and, and take that risk into account when you make that selection. And I think there's a high likelihood he's returning your 300 average, your 115 runs, your probably another 25, 30 home runs. And there's value to that to me in the first round. Yeah. I mean, if you're setting your KDS, set it at 14 and take Freddie Freeman. You'll probably get him. And, you know, he might be – maybe you should be taking him top five. And, hey, I'll just snatch a 14 and I'll snatch a quick one in the second round. And, and, and a follow-up on it because I raised the steals. With the change that we made and we asked that question, if we – to what extent do we believe – that some of the premium base dealers steal that many more bases that we need to get them that soon. Maybe, and if you believe that, that's fine. I mean, we don't know. We don't genuinely know until we start to play the games here. But if you think that it's going to help everybody across the board, it's really not going to swing things any further in the direction of a Julio Rodriguez or, I mean, Acuna is amazing, but still, you, you get the idea. Yeah, in fact, the, the, that the fact that stolen bases are going to be up everywhere probably makes stolen bases much more fungible, which decreases the value of the people who steal bases. Uh, Derek, would you be drafting? Now, I know you have this thing about corner infield, but uh, w would you be interested in drafting Freddie Freeman number seven, eight, because he's been so consistent, and that's really what you want out of a first-round pick? No. No, I wouldn't. Trey Turner? Yeah. Trey Turner is is uh, 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 maybe he's a agent, right maybe influences the lineup. Yes. Yep. Projections gonna account for that. So if the projection likes him there, then sure, I'll take him. The Dodgers, I'm sure, will fill the gap either way. And, of course, by the time you draft in March, hopefully you'll have a solution and you'll have a better idea. But, uh, yeah, why, why you say no? 
again, I don't think that Freddie Freeman is necessarily any safer than anybody else who projects exactly the same but hasn't done it as, quote-unquote, consistently. You know, you can come up with any number of players who were consistent and then they weren't. Mike Trout was so consistent and then he wasn't. You know, there, there's boring guys that you get. Whit Merrifield, how safe was Whit Merrifield coming into this year? You, you can count on for batting average and stolen bases and runs, and then he was a part-time player. Like, I think we overestimate our ability to analyze risk. And well, The only thing I'll say is that I've done, because ATC looks at many different projections, uh, ATC sort of looks at parameter risk, right? How, how, di- how do projections differ from each other? And what I've noticed and studied, you know, official study, is that the players that the projections are more consistent tend to actually have a higher expected return at the end of the year than their uh, projected value and vice versa for players with projections that disagree. For example, uh, I was very high this year and ATC was high on Aaron Judge. That's because the projections that comprise ATC had him at 41 homers, 41 homers, 41 homers, 40.8 homers, 40 homers. Uh, it was consistent. So that tells that because I've done a study on that showed that, oh, actually, we should be bumping up the price because his expected value risk adjusted using parameter risk is higher. So there, there is a thing. There is a thing. About so you have studied that. Uh, I've studied the parameter risk effect. Yeah, the health risk, of course, you know, it, it's it's harder to influence, but we know it's we also know it's more real. I mean, Byron so, Buxton ain't getting healthy anytime so soon. So you're saying, you know, Judge projected for I don't know whatever you want to call it. He was a thirty dollar player according to ATC. You're saying that in your studies you found that the guys that have that level of consistency between projections, if they project for thirty dollars. Their worth is, you know, they're actually are like a thirty-two dollar player, yes. a thirty-five dollar player. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's and the ones who are at the opposite are worth minus two on that. Absolutely, yeah. sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, it, so, so in other words, if his if his games total for the projections varied wildly, that you'd penalize him for it. You find that that's those are guys to avoid. Yes, because judges not, not had to his, avoid, but but to take off price, right? To risk adjust. Because judge would be a great example of that. If you flash back two years, he probably had a, a hundred game projection, a hundred and forty five, right. and a ninety five for all we know. That's right. Obviously, total value incorporates the playing time, mm. the consistency in homers. But yes, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, when you have inconsistent playing time, that factors into some of these numbers here. Um, you know, we're talking about an individual player, but my question to you, we'll start with Tristan, is, you know, are we looking at risk on an individual player basis, or is it more important to actually focus on the team construct in the aggregate. So say you draft, it's okay to draft Byron Buxton, but you got to get a couple of safe guys. Or if you get a bunch of safe guys at the top, sure, you can take a lot more risky darts. Like, Is there a notion of aggregate team risk, or does it really not matter? Just make sure that you get every single risky guy at a discount, and, and you're fine. For me, it's more the aggregate, just because otherwise I'd be afraid I'd avoid all of the Byron Buxtons out there. The big thing... I'm watching at least at the draft table is not to put all of my steals investments into guys like that because that's the last category I want to have to completely fill on the fly during the season. You're either going to have to pay up in trades or you're going to have to have the luckiest fab out there possible. And believe me, there have been a couple of years I've 
check, there's nothing on the stolen base market. So that's something I'm a little cautious, uh, cautious about on an individual player basis. But otherwise, I just don't want the team to have a massive number of guys with volatile projections. Because in that case, it's great to be the one who says, oh, I either want to win the league or finish dead last. I hate finishing dead last. Right. I don't want that. I want the team to be competitive. Because if I can put it even in the middle and I have some upside guys and I get the right moves during the season, I can make that team win. Right, right, right. Derek, your thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think there is, there is a, a component to, you know, strategically building your roster, you know, depending on the type of format you're in, you know, especially if you're in like an NFBC type of thing, like you might want, and I don't know if I necessarily call it risk so much as range of outcomes, where in a, in a mixed, you know, in a, a 12 team league, I'm not the guy that's out there overpaying for prospects. Like, you can draft Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Witt because half the time they're going to turn into Jared Kalanick anyway, more than half the time, like 90% of the time. Um, I'm I'm a Mets fan, so uh, I'm good with this comment. (laughs) So they're not for me. But in an NFBC format where you really do need to, like, be in the 99th percentile out of a lot of teams, uh, maybe you do need to embrace some of that those guys that have the wider range of outcomes and hope you're hitting on on the high end for them. But if you build a whole team where you're drafting six of those prospects, like you're dead. Your team is the worst in the league and, and you lose. Um, yeah. But you might need one or two of those guys. So it, there is, I think, a, a balance to it, depending. And it's all format dependent. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, if you're looking for an overall prize, um, you're not going to want to have the safest, safest team overall. Right? By, the, by the way, Derek, leave my Bobby Witt Jr. alone. <laughs> okay? No no, no curse in that guy. Come on. But th- you mentioned with the NFBC, by the way, it also does come down to the style of play. Going back to those shallow mixed leagues, I'd be a lot more apt to say, to heck with it. I'm going with, yeah, I'm going with a little bit more of a risky approach and shooting for the moon because you can fill those gaps. You can't so much in the deeper formats. Yeah, absolutely. In a shallow format, the replacement level is much higher mm-hmm. on the wire. So that's 100% true. Uh, I yep. spoke to Mike Podhorzer about this. Um, he, this is his team he drafted in labor. Are you ready for this? Ronald Acuna, Jacob DeGrum, Salvador Perez, Alberto Mondesi, it gets better, Byron Buxton, Kershaw, Verlander, uh, Christian Yelich, Noah Syndergaard, Luis Severino. I mean, that is some stacked, risky, quote-unquote, team. He finished, I think, almost second place. I think it was like a point out of second place. Uh, it can be done. Uh, I spoke to him, and he's like, well, I don't care. I'm getting great bargains all around. Uh, could be true. Um, you know, for me, I find that you, yes, you can, you can make a discount for each individual player, but you have to limit it overall. And I say this because I find that when I have l- very li- low risk on a team, uh, I don't need the upside guys. Like, I want to make value on each and every player on the margins and then i'll get lucky or i'll find that one three dollar guy who turns into 20 i'll find that aaron judge to put me over the top but i can't win a league unless i have a base of value and you get that more with the low risky play so i think the aggregation does matter at all make sense yeah. It does. I'm just scared of hearing Mondesi and Buxton on the same team. <laughs> it's, it's, you guys remember that? Yeah. He he had to. Now I yeah. I should point out. Yeah. 
Yes, I should point out that this was an IL league yeah. with IL spots. If you, yes, yes. Yeah, there probably were more players on the IL than there were in the entire uh, in the in his entire active roster, right? Um, I want to talk about corner infielders. Uh, in the past, we've noted because of projections that there were great pockets of value lower down. So I know for sure, Derek, we've talked about this many times that. Oh, yeah. That even though Freddie Freeman looked great up top, Paul Goldschmidt looked great up top, we, we sort of said, you know what? Sure, he looks like a good player, good value, but if we get that corner infielder up top, if we get two of them and we block our spots, we won't be able to get these tremendous corner infield bargains lower down. I found that in 2022, the opposite was true. I mean, the corner infielders taken up top, Jose Ramirez, Vlad, Devers, Freeman, Machado, Olsen, Alonzo, Riley, Goldschmidt, Arna, all of them were rock solid at the top, and there weren't really many busts. Chris Bryant, that's mm -hmm. not many busts, but who jumped up? Who really gave value? Who were those big ones at the bottom? Not much. Christian Walker, Rowdy Telez, Nate Lowe, Drury, but he actually wasn't drafted, so he can't even be in this discussion. Based on that, I don't think that 2022 would have been right. Do you A, do you agree with that, and B, do you think that's going to happen in 2023? Do you think that the value in corner infielders are going to be get those top non-risky ones, or will there be value late? It really all depends on what the projections look like and how the market is is pricing these guys. You know, I think going into 2022, we weren't seeing quite as many theoretical bargains ahead of draft day as we had the previous few years, where there they were crazy. Um, there were some, like Christian Walker was a guy that I targeted everywhere this year and, and got everywhere. Um, but we don't know what it's, it's still really early. I don't know what it's going to be like next year, but I'm going to take what the room gives me. I'm going to take what the market gives me. And a lot of times what we see with corner infielders and kind of the, the, the crux of the theory is that corner infielders are the types of players in general that the market undervalues. They don't steal bases. They're old, they're boring because they've moved off other positions. You know, the guys playing first base are usually like in their 30s, but a lot of them still have really good skills. They're just not going to be the guy that has the huge upside that people want to chase. And so a lot of times we see these guys come at discounts because they have these qualities that are just not exciting to people. And so, yeah, I think even though that's the way it played out this year, it's not going to scare me off if the projections say, there's a bunch of value, you know, on the low end of, of corner infield again because I, I do think in theory that's the way it should play out most years. The one thing that strikes me about corner infield is what's happened to first base as a player pool over the past five to ten years. If you're a prospect hound like I am, you're aware that the first base top prospect list is nowhere near as exciting now as it was in maybe 2005. We used to have all the big prospects there. That's where all the hitters were. And it has not been quite that. There have been some good players, but not quite to the level we remember 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I don't know that people have adjusted to that quite quickly enough because it's gone on for long enough that that pool's dried up a little bit. And I think that influences corner infield. You're right. I mean, you look at the top 10 to 12 or so that we drafted last year, almost all of them turned you know, a great return on your investment. Uh, I wouldn't want to overreact to that going into next year, just looking at this one year and saying it's a one-year aberration. It's not. This, is pa this pattern's actually been going on for a couple of years. Okay. 
Um, we're going to talk uh, about 2023 first round in a second. Uh, just want to let you know, for the audience here, we're going to take mailbag or audience questions, I should say, for this. So if you got a question, think about it, and we'll start that up in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but first, on 2023 um, first round, let's go around the room. I want to talk about maybe a player who is going to be taken in the first round in 2023, or currently is, I guess, uh, in draft so far, who is overvalued and probably shouldn't be drafted in the first round. Let's start with you, Tristan. So the, the two that stood out, we talked a little bit about this, about this looking at the NFBC early drafts, and it was, it was what, 12 leagues, I think, right? Yeah. Julio Rodriguez is going second. I mean, that's absurd. That's yeah. the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire I, I life. I love the guy. I love the guy. I, you, can, you can easily sell him on like a first round, round thing, but number two, Julio Rodriguez. Who thinks that who, yeah, who, who thinks Julio Rodriguez should go first half of first round? What about second half of first round? Most people here. How about first half of second round? How about anywhere in the next top three rounds after that? Yeah? Anybody who thinks he's a fourth round or, or worse? Okay, so both people say he's yep. later half, second round, uh, later half, first round, first half, second round. Yep. yep. Still, still, some things he can improve in his game. I, I want to watch, uh, and it's not to inspire panic on this one. I want to watch a little bit about the injury just finished the year with. Yeah. I don't like players going into the off season with a little bit of question because it means I've got to study the entire off season into spring training. Just got to be ever so careful with a first round pick. Yeah. He's a great player. Massive future ahead, but number two? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. The other one, <laughs> we won't rail entirely on him. Bobby Wood Jr. was sixth. Yeah. <laughs> I love this guy, but not at six overall. Yeah. I mean, he, he was not quite up even to the level that people expected last year. And I think he could break out in a major way, but to the level of the sixth best player in the game, he was ahead of some pretty prominent names. That's and what Otani wasn't one of them. I think Otani was fourth. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, but there were a few, he might have been ahead of Judge. Um, if he wasn't, he was right after Judge. Yeah, a little bit Who, after, but yeah. Wit versus Judge. Who's taking Wit over Judge? Uh, I'm taking Judge. You know exactly. Uh, by the way, to point out. Um, if you, if you take Julio Rodriguez and he's awesome, that's great. If you don't take him by, and you take a different player in the first round, by the way, you can still win your league. However, if he severely disappoints, you're in a massive hole. We've got some audience. Uh, real, real, real quick, to Tristan's point, would you rather Witt or Julio? Witt or Julio? I'd, pro I'd rather, for this year, I'd rather Julio. Yeah, and another audience question here. At the draft position, yeah, right, yes. Yeah, yeah. If I have to, if I have to do it, yeah, I'd take, I'd take Julio at that draft. Yeah. Kyle Tucker or Julio Rodriguez. Yeah, I'd probably See, I, do Kyle Tucker, but yeah, I love Tucker. Yeah. Uh, Derek, you have a, an overvalued, uh, overvalued player for the first round, or have we covered them? It's it's Julio and it's Wit. Like that, <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah, the right yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm sorry? Where you, Derek, where do you have wit? You know what, sir? You can leave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm going to throw out Otani. I, I think that uh, it's, again, it's, I don't think people think enough that this is more risky than you think just because he wasn't injured. 
He still has more risk. Uh, how about somebody who is not being drafted in the first round, but probably should? Uh, I'm going to say Jacob DeGrom. Um, yeah. At the, at the very least, at the end of the first round. The only thing holding DeGrom back from being the first overall pick is health. And uh, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. But uh, I don't know. I'll take the shot on it, you know? I'm, I'm cool with it. His upside is massive. And uh, I don't think we're great at evaluating health. So if everything seems to be checking out this offseason, you know, DeGrom is the best pitcher in baseball by a lot. Like, by a lot. Like, no one is even remotely close. Tristan? I don't think I would take him in the first round. I mean, in a 15-teamer, I would. But the one who I think get, should get more love is Sandy Alcantara. I, and, and, Nick and Pollock just woke up, by the way. There is probably the points league bias involved in that. But in his defense, ballpark, he's proven he can give you a large number of innings. And I like the guys who've proven that their teams will allow them to pitch those 200 frames. How many of those guys are left? We love you, Tristan. <laughs> yeah. Don't you take my Sandy Alcantara, though. He's mine. And uh, I'm going to throw out there who's currently, he's just outside, being drafted outside, a Bo Bichette. I think there's a good case for Bo yep. Bichette to be right up top in the first round. Yep. He might even get there, but right now he's just out. Uh, and so uh, those who have questions, by the way, um, you can start making your way to the front. We'll start. But a last one in the category, who's somebody that's being drafted in the first round now that's probably even undervalued right now from where he's being picked? In the first uh, but undervalued. Yeah. I I'll start here Tucker. with this one. Uh, Tucker, Tucker, you think? Okay. Tucker's going what? Ninth, eighth, ninth on our list? He should be going higher. Uh, Tucker <clears throat> is going seventh. Mm, it's, okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I Mookie. Think I'd still say Mookie is, is the one I was gonna yeah, say. Mookie is going too late. He's going like eleven or so. He, was he 10, should be I think. ten. He, yeah. he should be even higher, I think. Yep. Yeah. Anyone else to throw in? Mookie's the Mookie. guy that, that yep. stuck okay. out to me. All right. Uh, if you guys have uh, questions, Machado is uh, maybe Machado could be an answer. He's also being drafted right outside. That's that's another one of the if you want to go with the consistency guys. Machado has yeah. got an outrageous level of consistency if you invest in that. Right, 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 right. All right, uh, time for our audience questions. If you do have a question, please come on up. We got a microphone for you. Don't be shy. The first one is always shy. Please uh, come on up now. <laughs> yes, come on up. Oh, we got it. Here we go. First one to actually get up gets the mic. Yeah, here we go. Let's go, right. Kevin. So we're. Uh, say your name, by the way, for the show. My name is Kevin Hastings. Um, and we're earlier in the podcast, and now we're talking consistency. And when we talk consistency, we're talking four or five years. Is that enough? consider that consistent that's a good question is what time frame of consistency if we're evaluating consistency it's yeah, almost as if it's completely arbitrary and everyone has their own opinion on it and it's not a real thing there's a reason for the air quotes on Machado before. Yeah. It, it's it's a little something but that's not what should be driving your decisions fully and i, I think it has to be 
if you're, if you're not talking about a minimum of three years. And by the way, if we're talking about three years, 2020 is involved and no thank you. So. Yeah, that's true. It makes it a little bit tough with the stub year of 2020 right in it because that was sort of weird. And to be honest, 2021 as well because you sort of had the heftier than you – know, even now we had the lockout year, right? That was also mm -hmm. – yep. you know, it makes the consistently consistency level there. Uh, I mean I think it also depends on the statistic. I think some statistics really converge a lot quicker than the others. Uh, you know, batting average, you probably need a much larger sample size. Maybe you need three or four years. Power probably converges in two and a half. Right? Chris Davis is totally hitting 245 this year. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> book it. Yeah. Good question. Uh, Scott, you got a question? Say, say your name on the on the microphone if you don't mind. My name's Scott Chu. I'm very handsome if you can't tell. Uh, how how does the how does the increase in stolen bases and, and particularly the increase in players who steal ten to twenty bases change your approach for stolen bases going into twenty twenty three? Do you mean in regard to like the assumption that steals are gonna go up because of the rule changes or well so steals did go up. For 2022, do you think that continues with the trend? Or, I mean, we, we've recently been seeing so many, like, so, there's been such a focus on the scarcity of stolen bases. Do you think that changes going forward with the rule changes and the increase in stolen bases in 2022? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of times you see stolen bases fluctuate with run environment. You know, run environment was down this year, stolen bases up a little bit. I think really the main thing that's going to drive it next year, though, is these rule changes. I think the stolen bases in particular, I think we're going to see a wildly different environment for those next year. That's going to be the main thing here. And I haven't thought about how I'm going to approach stolen bases yet. I don't know what the projections are going to look like, but I do think we're going to see more of them. And uh, it's going to it's going to be interesting. Any thoughts, Tristan? Yeah, I I'd agree with that. I, I'm struggling with whether to heavily weight the speed demons and give them most of the increases or to spread it across the middle tier. So last year when steals went up, most of it was distributed across the dozen to two dozen steel pool. Uh, the leaders didn't get much of an increase at all. We had 40, uh, one over 40. We've got uh, six or over 30, uh, 12 that were over 25. So is it going to be evenly distributed across that group, or is it going to go to the quickest guys? I'm, it's hard for me to determine that right now. Um, I hate to say it, that's, that's one where I'd like to see a couple spring games because I don't think they mean a lot, but I just want to see whether teams bake that into their you know strategies then a little bit more. Yeah, I think that uh, if you can get a hold of good soft information as to what the managers are going to do. Remember, it's also the uh, pickoff rule mm -hmm. that you can only pick off yep. three times. Maybe that leads I also. I think that will also contribute. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I kind of think that there's going to be uh, sort of more fungible players with stolen bases. And by the way, stolen bases have been up the last year. There's been an uptick. Uh, we're back at the levels of 2018 right now. There was 2,400 and change stolen bases this year. Back in 2018, there was 2474. So we're back to that level. Like it's been sliding, but now we're going up, and you probably are going to get a bounce anyway. So even before the rule changes, I would have said that speed is going to be a little bit more muted. The value of stolen bases, since there's going to be more in the aggregate, and I think spread around, uh, are going to be there. Certainly, the value in stolen bases this year came from not from really high draft picks. Jorge Mateo. Um, the guy on the Marlins, what's his name for a second? John, John, John Birdie. John Birdie, of course. Uh, you know, uh, not jazz. You know, no love for jazz. No. Come on, he could steal some bases for you. I think he gets on base like all the time. 
I think a lot of that comes down to, again, the market being overly confident in their ability to assess things. And we see it so much with speed because it's something that you really can visualize. This guy's fast. I know he's going to steal bases. And I think people really think, oh, this guy's definitely a 30 steal guy. This guy's definitely a 40 steal guy. And a lot of times we see with the big speedsters, like, they regress the same as anything else. Speed is noisy, even though people don't want to think it is. And so those big speedsters, you're not getting the stolen bases a lot of times that you think you're getting out of them. Yeah, and, and power is also going down. So some of the philosophy of teams to say, well, why steal, try to steal a base? Because you run into an out where, you know, if, if we're going to have an uptick in balls in play and more hits, there'll be less of the pr propensity to say don't steal. I think there's going to be pressure on more steals in general, which... I think it's going to be all over the place, which will mute the steals. I want to make a, bit, a quick poll because I'm curious. Sure. And we have another projection master who's pretending to be in the room right now, but not quite. How many people think there'll be a 60 steal guy this year? I do. I can't tell you who it is. I'm not going to project I, I anybody for 60, yeah, I don't but know who I'll say is. someone will. Yeah. yeah. That's why I was curious. No? Why? We didn't have any I think there'll be more. Yeah, could see that too. Yeah, that's true. I think the 20 steel guys will double. The guys at the top already take all their opportunities. It's going to be guys that take yeah. more opportunities. Yeah. 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 You don't have, you don't have to the best part with me asking that is you don't yeah. have to name who it is. And, and that's a good point by the way Kevin that uh, I think it will come from the middle and just as you said that you know teams are are saying don't steal unless you have a very high stolen base success rate, 78% whatever number that they're com comfortable with. Uh, those guys are already, already getting the opportunities. But if we think that the stolen base success rate is going to be higher for those marginal, maybe 70%, 72%, and all the new rules now put them into the 78, that just propels more people who weren't already trying to steal to now steal. So I, I agree with that, that I don't think it's going to come from the top. I do think it's going to come from the middle, and that's a very, very good point. Yeah. Does that, does that make that stolen bases aren't valuable? Yes. Stone bases, the value relative to last year goes down. There you go. You need more steals to compete, but the players are now more fungible in terms of the stolen bases. You're going to get them more from the bottom. So you, even though, yes, everyone, everyone goes up together, so the, the, diff, the value of players are the marginal differences. That will decrease. Well, they'll, they'll all go up. Yes, correct, correct. Yeah. I don't know that all of them will. Well, not all of them, be, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, anybody have another uh, question? An audience question? Here we have somebody coming up. Please state your name and where you're from, and what else do you want to say? Alan DeLeonardis, Baseball HQ. Who are you wearing tonight? <laughs> Who am I wearing tonight? Okay. Do you like websites? I don't know. <laughs> I'm wearing the uh, Beat the Shift podcast shirt by uh, Rotoware. And uh, no, we're not going to change our name even though the uh, shift is being banned. So. <laughs> All right. Real, real question. Um, closers, how much higher do they go? 
All right. Want to tackle that? How much first? higher do they go? Oh. Should should go or will they go? Will go because there's a big difference there. I I don't know that it'll shift as much as we think. I think. The premium ones will go a little bit sooner, but I don't think on the whole we're going to see much of a shift. Of course, again, it comes to style of play. They're yeah. going to go. They're going to go quicker in points than they do in roto leagues. Yeah, there, there's two forces I think to, to the, with the saves. Um, remember last year we also had this thing called the lockout. So anybody drafting without information was everybody up until the lockout ended, right? Usually you know where players signed. Kenley Jansen didn't sign. You had Craig Kimbrell. Mm -hmm. Well, is he going to be traded? Where is he going to go, right? There was much more uncertainty. So in early drafts, like if you're drafting in November, the saves are much more pushed up than they are later in the year. If you're in a draft and hold, they're much more pushed up than in uh, waiver wire. No? No, no, I'm saying as opposed no, the, the draft and hold is pushed up as opposed to waiver wire leagues. Is what I'm saying. Because oh, right, well right, right, well because you have because to lock down yeah. some of your some of your saves. You want more certainty. Anytime you need more certainty, that pushes prices. Uh, but of course you also have the baseball factor of more teams are doing save by committee. The Tampa Bay's are uh, Tampa Bay Rays are having everybody and their grandmother save a game, right? Uh, you're also having safe shares. You're having le teams say, I'm just going to take high leverage, my best guy, and put him high leverage, right? You have that factor. Um, I, I kind of think that it's going to stay high, but it's going to be pushed lower than it did this time last year and even into March because of the lockout scenario. That sound good? Oh, I don't know. Saves are stupid. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. It is. All right. Please say your name and how handsome you are. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm very handsome. Thank you. Uh, Carl from Dallas. I agree. All right. Thank you. So um, the question is, kind of going back earlier, if you have a player that's been injured for a good part of the season, the following year, do you factor in that at all? And if you do, how much weight does it carry? Uh, the answer is I don't factor it in. I'd like to if it matters. Um, injuries are very, very difficult to study. First, there's not really great databases of it, and then there's just the thing of, like, everything's different. Like, if you have an elbow injury, like, everyone has different physiology. Everyone has different recovery time and conditioning, and, like, you don't know how it's going to affect everybody. You don't know the severity. of. There's so many factors to account for. Um, that no, I don't account for it. I'd like to, but it is a massive undertaking. I think the only way that it might be accounted for is in playing time projections, which I don't do. I just, I take, actually I take ATCs. <laughs> there you go. So you're giving, I mean, you're saying that there's a lot of possibilities that yeah, it, it could it affect Yeah, it very them. possibly matters. I would say but it almost certainly matters, okay. but um, I think it's very difficult to quantify. Is Not there, impossible, just Is difficult. there any intangibles that you Factor in things like a uh, player in his contract year who wants to go free agency or no that that I think studies have pretty much shown don't doesn't oh, really? matter yeah 
Uh, I mean, uh, Ruvain's not here for this injury question, of course. I know. I'm, uh, we all miss him. Yeah, uh, but it really does matter the type of injury. When you have a soft tissue injury, the reoccurrence is going to be much higher. If you have a freak, he uh, was hit by a pitch and broke his, you know, this, that's not, uh, it's a freak injury that's not going to account. So all injuries are not, in, you know, they're not so all you, the same. So you factor in what kind of injury it is. Um, y- yeah, I mean, uh, t- Playing time projections, if done right, should factor that in. So when to, to be clear, I don't think it is being factored in in most public projections or any public projections, but okay. theoretically it should, yeah. Great, thanks. When, by the way, when the injury is occurring matters. So, for example, I mentioned with Rodriguez, I think that's a minor thing. That could, you know, by next week we could all be like, okay, yep, that's no big deal. Sure. But I know I'm generalizing, but fade every injury that's happening during spring training. Like, not one that they suffer then, but if a guy comes in and they're like, oh, yeah, he's going to be great. He's going to be fine. Generally speaking, I take the approach of fade the player if you can. If that's creating a discount, by all means. We, we spoke a lot about Ronald Acuna Jr. last year. Right. The market was overcorrecting for that. By all means, I'll draft him then. Right. But in general, I will take the approach of fading the injury because more often than not, it does not work out. Uh, but, and I'm going to talk about an injury where they missed a large portion of the year. The previous not, not year, ju- Yeah. So if that injury still has a bearing on where he's at today, then I'll take it into, into account. But if he's okay today, I'm much less concerned about it than I am if he's recovering from it heading into next spring at the time that I'm drafting. So this past year, Acuna, uh, mm-hmm. you know who I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was going, number one, considered before, mm-hmm. way before the injury. Yep. Um, did you not, would you, did you, if you had a number one pick, did you pick him? Nope. No. So you did factor it in. Oh, yeah. Because it was going on at the time. Yeah. How about the guy who doesn't factor it in? Did you pick him? <laughs> number one? Uh, no, I wouldn't have picked him number one. I don't, th- I don't think he. the year before. before no, the I, I didn't think he deserved it then either. Okay. Derek was, was more performance stuff. Yes, I got it. Okay. To speak a little bit towards that. Usually when you're injured, you don't play very well before you're injured. And that organically moves the projection. It does. Towards, you know, so I found that you can just let it do itself. Three-year averages are not lazy. They're incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People, people think three-year <coughs> averages are lazy. They do a lot of, they do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. You know, so anyway. Yeah. I mean, with Acuna also, it was a leg injury, so you know you also have to figure that when he returns the first X in general. Now, this didn't happen. Acuna stole bases right away. Right. But in general, I would say, yeah, you know, for the first month or so, probably a little bit less on the stolen bases, you know. Um, but, yeah, you know, your point is right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Good. Uh, any other questions from – Just a follow-up on that? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, right into the mic is good. My name's Eric. Um, How handsome you- are you? Anyways, quick question. (laughs) Following up, you guys dismissed contract years. Mm -hmm. Yep. Where's the data that you've done? Can we see it? I'm pretty sure the forecaster every year has a study, doesn't it? Contract years. There's been a few. You went through, for example, on Judge, that it's his consistency, not the fact that he had his contract year. It's one of those things. I don't mean it. It's one of you want to talk on the mic? No, I just yell. No, it's one of those things that it it will affect somebody, and it won't affect somebody. Yep. But you can't discern it from the data. Yep. Yeah. yeah that that that's the main thing. It's the same yeah. thing 
batter versus pitcher we talk about a lot. And so, yeah, yeah. It feels like every time a guy has a contract year, has a career year. The, those are the guys you're noticing, though. For every right. guy like I mean, that, there's, there's another a, that yeah, isn't. Yeah. Anytime, you have, for... anytime you have projections, uh, you know, there's always going to be three out of ten people who, oh, that, that didn't make sense, and three out of ten people who, oh, it, it's whether you get more or not. And so on the average, the contract year is noise. Compared it's not statistically. switching teams and not having a good year versus contract year, any difference? Switching teams is, is different because there's different environments. What are you right? saying about that rule that you don't pick a guy that switched teams? He's I don't think that's a rule you should follow. No, <laughs> yeah. it's noise, I think. The, the only thing I ever found on players switching teams was when there was a league switch and there was more in the distant past. There was occasionally a two or three week slight downturn in production. But the great thing about that is then you just trade for the guy. So, oh no, he's he's not adapting well. Okay, sure, trade him to me. Yeah, Phil, I'm super handsome. At least my wife thinks so. Uh, you can also call me Grizz. That's probably easier to remember. Um, you know a guy I, named I had a Grizz question. is handsome. You guys were talking about uh, uh, closers. Are saves obsolete as a category? And should all leagues be hold plus saves from now on? I'm not advocating uh, for either. I hate holds. Ryan over there probably knows where I'm coming with well, this. Well, I think anyway. let's look. Can we pull the audience first on this one? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who, who thinks that saves are obsolete and we should go save plus hold? Raise your hand. I'm and who thinks that we like the traditional saves game? Raise your hand. More of that. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I, I hate one thing about holds. Yeah. Paul Spore, put your hand down. You are a tastemaker, sir. You need it's to be a, on the right yeah. side of this. It's a stupid factor. I get that. And I know you know what I'm talking about, Todd. I hate that there is a different holds definition across different scoring systems. And until that changes, I will never get behind that stat. Like the, the, the David Robertson thing in either the wild card game or the division series, it was like three or four years ago, comes in in the fourth inning and he got a hold in some sources and he didn't in the other. And until we clean that up... I don't feel comfortable with the stat. September this year too. I forget yeah. Because yeah. some. What a hold is. Exactly. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it's a save, but it's after the fifth on some sites, and it's any time in the game and others. It's a save, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so define it clearly for our purposes, and then do it. It can't be any worse than a save. Yeah. It, it can't be any yeah. worse than a save. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's a debate, and uh, I mean, at first pitch, we'll, we'll have more of a discussion. I mean, I could beat these categories to death, but it's like until we get better definitions of wins and holds and, and saves, frankly, we're, we're at a little bit of a loss. We have to play with what we have. All right, I have a mailbag question in here, and uh, whoever's next, come step forward for the next one. But mailbag question, who is a player that you might take in an auction that you wouldn't in a draft or maybe a player type? Somebody that you would take in an auction, but you wouldn't take in a draft, snake draft scenario. Interesting question. That's for us? Yeah. That's well, I mean, I catchers. The, the way I think about, okay. I mean, the way I think about anything is who am I going to take is dependent on, on price. So mm -hmm. are there certain types of players that are going to be overpriced in one format relative to the other? And then that's my answer. Catchers, closers—they tend to have the widest, widest variance I've seen, and I, I'll—I'm much more comfortable taking either of those in an auction format. 
Yeah, yeah. Some of the uh, replacement level adjustment players, uh, you in auction, I'm more comfortable taking them because uh, here's the problem with the difference between draft and, and auction, I think, is, you know, if you take a top catcher, let's say you want to take JT Real Muto going next, okay, and you want to take him in the third round, is that a good buy or not? And the answer in a snake draft is it really depends on when the next couple of catchers take because it's really about price difference. Are you getting a couple of rounds discount? If Certainly if the next couple of catchers go round four or five, I'll take Real Muto in the third. That's much better relative to the catchers. But you can't really gauge it as well. In an auction, you can gauge it a lot better. If you pay attention to what the market is doing, you can see what, okay, I think he's worth this. It is what he went for. I think this is what he's worth. This is what he went for. You can gauge what the market premium is better, and so you can make a better assessment of where the value lies on the scale. So I'd say catchers are a little bit easier uh, mm -hmm. to pick in an auction than a draft is what I would say for this. It's a good answer. Yeah. Any other questions? Some really good questions here. So I'm Rudy. I'm from uh, Roto Prospects. I deal with prospects a lot and rookies. And looking at the, the rookie class we just had, so you were mentioning Bobby Witt and Julio Rodriguez. There's also Spencer Strider and Michael Harris. And they're MLB encouraging teams to bring guys up sooner now and, and get draft pick compensation for that. And we saw them hold Gunner and, and Corbin Carroll under 130 at-bats so they could stay rookie class. What do you think about how that how they get are going to get pushed up maybe from the value from the value that's been returning on some of these players that now that they're getting more of an opportunity? You're talking about Bobby Witt, Julio going so high. Are we going to see more people pushing for who's the next Strider, who's the next Michael Harris, and yeah. who are some of those guys that maybe you guys are looking at and starting to push up? I mean, I mean, playing time because they're being played more because of the new rules and new collective bargaining agreement uh, certainly makes them more valuable in general, right? They're getting more playing time. You also have the fact that there was no minor league season in the COVID year, so there's a little bit of a bottleneck of some of these guys coming up. So you you know you saw some a lot together. So you know the answer in general is yes, it'll be pushed up. Uh, any thoughts on any specific players that we have? No, I don't care about prospects. Um, that's <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a projection guy. Everyone knows projections are usually down on prospects, and um, I'm fine to play into that. But uh, it's wild to me because prospects get pushed up so much in drafts to begin with that if they're going to start getting pushed up more, um, you know, like it's great. I, I want to find an upside guy. I want to find the Julio Rodriguez. But so many of them flop that in terms of pure value, they're generally very bad picks. Um, but if you need to play for upside, then, you know, whatever. I don't care. Prospects suck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. No, that's, it's, a, it's a good question because I'm curious whether. <laughs> I, I mean, I know you're a prospect guy. I'm totally joking. Sorry, <laughs> the the Gunner question, I'm curious whether people are going to start pushing up the prospect market based on those late season call-ups because that was uncommon. That, that changed as a direct result of the rule. But so not I, only the prospects like that that are the obvious uh, top five, top ten right, prospects right. that are going to get tons of playing time, but who people want to know who the next Michael Harris and who the next Strider are. As Tristan knows, I won a league with him in it this year because they got Strider and Harris. So... Yep. You, you beat Tristan you, in the league. You, just, you want me to it, say it, that Kyle Harris is great. I was going to say, is that why it. you came up with the question? <laughs> <laughs> I will give you this. Har but, Harrison will probably make an impact this year. But well, my guy's still Grayson Rodriguez. But I'm trying to find – so maybe those guys, though, are super late. They're 
in-season pickups or you, you saw him in April or May start to do something or maybe get called up and pouncing then. But so, so knowing who those guys are now, but, but still maybe we should be taking more of those type yeah. of risks at the very end of drafts. Depends on how late. I mean, we're, if we're I'm going to take a prospect, I definitely prefer to take a guy like that where the cost is, is very low. You can replace them a lot easier than if yeah. you're trying to take – you know, Jared Kalanick in the fourth round or whatever people yeah. were doing with him. Or, yeah. yeah, I was about to make that point. Now, see, it's called return on investment. I, I draft based on return on investment, okay? There's two things that can make a return on investment really good. One is a big return. The other is a low investment. So by definition, if you want to take those shots of the prospects and the investment is very low, by all means, because they have the possibility, and if they don't, you throw them away and you pick up somebody else. But in general, the prospect class as a whole is a poor investment if you're going to spend real dollars on it. For every one, oh, my God, Julio Rodriguez was awesome. This guy failed, that guy failed, right? It, you know, in some years, it's better than others. You had Bobby Witt this year. It was great, right? But in general, it's a failing class on a return on investment How about perspective. in the $1 investments? You know, the super late draft picks, the super cheap. Yeah, those, those know, are like, great. I, I, mm-hmm. We do them all the time. If, mm-hmm. if, you, if a dollar late in draft, sure, go ahead, especially if you think that they're going to get more playing time right away. Those are always the best. Playing time, playing time is king, of course, yeah. okay. you know. All right, any last questions before we wrap up the Beat the Shift podcast? Would anybody uh, like to tell us how handsome we are? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, last question here. I'm Michael. Uh, to Derek, before when you said you don't believe in risk, and you were talking about parameter uh, risk, I just wanted to, in, in the, an example of two players over maybe a five-year sample who have accumulated the same amount of auction value in dollars over that time, but player A's standard deviation year over year is double that of player B, is that risk? Or you've used the term range of outcomes. Is he prone to higher variance? How would you describe that, and what's the difference between those terms? A lot of math right yeah, there. So, <laughs> so I have <laughs> – it's a good question. The, the, the variance guy has double the value of the so, consistent one? Okay. Yeah, so yeah, okay. he's saying they, they've done the same thing on average, but one has done it consistently, and the other has been kind of up and down with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have spoken a little hyperbolically. It's not like I don't believe in risk. I just think that it's like way overblown. Um, in that case, personally, I'm going to treat them exactly the same. Everything else equal. I don't believe that the consistent guy is necessarily more consistent. I think he's been more consistent in the past. I don't think that's necessarily predictive of future consistency. So I'll answer this question with something we talked about last year on the show right here. Take a guy, let's say there's a closer, really top closer, free agent, hasn't signed yet on a team, and let's say you play in an American League-only mono league. He could either be a $20 player or he could be a $0 player. The answer is, what do you buy him for? The answer is, if you say $10, you're not accounting for the variance. You actually have to take another 25% haircut. I I know this because I do the finance. On a complete binary risk, there's a 25% haircut you need to know. Because remember, yes, in the long run, if you're playing 100 years, sometimes we'll be in the AL. Yeah, you'll get that value. But if you're playing for a single season, just like stocks, you play a company plays for a quarter, a, a year, like you want results in a financial thing, you got to take 25%. It comes to about 25% uh, haircut risk. So it's a very similar analogy there for a guy who's ultra consistent or who's flip-flopping value there. 
there is a mathematical consistency is worth something. And to roster a player who is much more consistent, you can almost pay over the value, but it's the opposite. If they're widely ranging, you do if you're playing for one year only, you do have to take a haircut. It could be 15%. We know, it depends how variable it is. Yeah, well, yeah, th th so that I was talking about, different projections are projecting the same thing. That is extremely small difference between projections, and I've shown that that consistency between projections is a positive in expected value, meaning if the, he was a $30 player uh, projected on average, he actually, at the end of the year, probably like a $32 player by history. Yeah? So when do any of you take Byron Buxton in a five outfield league? Yes. I'll take him. <laughs> oh, wait. I mean, no. I don't know when the projection says I should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, to, to what I do is it's a, I, I come up with a risk-adjusted price. His expected projection, and by the way, the projections include the baked-in playing time that he's going to miss, right? Yeah. You know he's going to miss it, and it's baked in, but then there's the discount of the associated risk. So I risk-adjust. I take the haircut and whatever round that falls. For me, it was about the fifth round. I got him in Raz Slam this year. I thought I would never buy Buxton whatsoever. I got him in Raz Slam because the price was worth it. Uh, Mondesi one year, I always think, he, I don't know, he was $17 in an auction one year. Man, at that price, I calculated it, it's right. It really depends on the actual thing. Last follow-up? Do we? Is there any like gray area where you personally say he's going to play less or play more? Yeah, uh, that that oh, yeah. playing time is like one of the biggest like I don't know what you want to call it like soft areas of projections. Like I'm not going to stand behind a playing time projection. If you think a guy's going to play more, you have insight into his role or his team. Or great, adjust the playing time. That that's the thing that I think people should be adjusting more than anything else in a projection is the playing time component. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agreed on that. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, that about wraps up the show. I do want to thank our guest. I want, first of all, thank the audience for coming. Let's hear it. All right. Yeah. And I do want to thank our guests for coming on. Maybe you just tell what's going on with you. Uh, Tristan Cockroft from ESPN. Yeah. Uh, already had the ranks up for this year. So, oh, wow. Yep. Wait, way too early, as we call them. Check them out. Always really great stuff by Tristan over at ESPN. And Derek Hardy? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, at Derek Hardy. I make the bat projection system. You can find it at Fangraphs for season long, at Roto Grinders for DFS, at EV Analytics for sports betting. It's pretty good. Yep, and I'm Ariel Cohen. You can see my work over at Fangraphs. I'm on Twitter, at ATCNY. And, of course, you can listen to us on the Beat the Shift podcast right here on this feed, which you're currently listening to right now. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thanks so much for everyone. Thanks, Arizona. Thank you for Baseball HQ for hosting this, this uh, podcast. And for the rest of you here, see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.